Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. If you blink, you will probably miss the direction of stock markets. They are whipping around. Uh, they were down, then they were up as much as a percent uh, on the NASDAQ, which has been leading the, the losses and the gains. And now they're up uh, solidly, but way off that NASDAQ up two-tenths of, of, uh, two of a percent. Joining us now, Matt Maley, equity strategist for Miller Tabak & Company. Uh, joining us, Matt, how do you interpret the whippy action that we've seen uh, that really has marked every day over the past few weeks after over the past few weeks excuse me it feels like a friday <laughs> yeah it's it's well yesterday's it was in, it was particularly worrisome because uh, a lot of these big swings we've seen uh, have been uh, kind of one directional we, in other words it, well you say two directional in other words the first direction is in the morning we either open up very strongly or open down very strongly and then uh, and then we uh, move in the other direction so that's kind of a second move yesterday we actually had three moves and uh, I think that, you know, that does nothing but uh, make people more uncertain. And as we all know, I mean, it's an old cliche, but it's very, very true. Uh, there's nothing worse for the markets. Uh, no, the, the markets hate nothing more than uncertainty. And I think this has got people uh, stepping back uh, from this rally this morning. I mean, it, it's still holding up a little bit, but uh, we're well off our highs on the day. Matt Maley, in your experience, is it possible to know how many shares of a particular stock need to be traded in order to move that said stock in one direction or or another? I'm sure there's been many studies on it, but for exact numbers, I'm not aware of it. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because hardly anyone has that information. I've never met anybody who can tell precisely what kind of volume is necessary in order to move a stock. And the reason I pose this to you is because the prices are determined not by long-term shareholders who may not ever touch their positions, but I'm wondering who determines the price that we see on a daily basis, not on a long-term basis, but on this volatile trading basis. Well, I'm afraid nowadays, of course, and more than more than ever, it's these, uh, you know, it's the mechanized trading, and we all t talk about algos and high-frequency traders and such. Uh, we've been talking about it for years, but uh, there's no question that they play a big role. And and the thing is, in in in, in former days when uh, you didn't have such a, you know, there was there's been recognized trading around for a while, but with these algorithms, they just kick in immediately. But not only do they add buy orders uh, when when the, when the market's going up, but they cancel sell orders or they cancel offerings in the same. On the, on the, in the opposite direction, when they add sell orders, they cancel their bids. And this exacerbates the big swings that we have in the marketplace, and it makes it for uh, much harder for, uh, for us to regain our, uh, you know, kind of the uh, uh, investor confidence that we need to get, you know, to form a, an exact, you know, a, a kind of the bottom for this, uh, this sell-off. So given that confusion, uh, can you read anything into this? I know that you have a lot of specialty looking at technical analysis and sort of watching the markets and, and the patterns. I mean, are you gleaning anything, or is it sort of all over the place because of this uh, of the noise. 
Well, no. I, actually, we, you know, we are seeing some things now. I mean, that's showing that we, I think, we're, we're getting somewhat close to a, a bottom. The problem, whenever we have, in terms of time, I think that we, uh, you know, we're starting to see a big pickup in volume. We're seeing some of the uh, the, the major uh, groups. Uh, I'm sorry, the major uh, averages being oversold. Maybe not yet to the quite to the big extremes we usually see, uh, but still getting very close to that. We're also seeing um, uh, sentiment. I mean, I look at the daily sentiment index, which measures futures traders. It's only 10% bulls right now. Uh, that's quite uh, quite extreme. Sometimes you usually seem to need to see it fall into the single digits, but we're getting very close to that. So uh, the, the problem is with these mechanized tradings going on, you could see a big another downdraft, another down 5% or more uh, over a couple of days before we get that bottom. Um, but the thing I like the most right now is what we're seeing in some of the really beaten down groups like the housing stocks and the uh, um, uh, bank stocks, they've gotten so oversold uh, that they're really getting to a level they should be bought, I believe, number one. And number two, this week they've outperformed the rest of the market. So they're holding up much better than uh, the rest of the market. Shows that at least they're getting washed out. So I think the rest of the market is getting very close to being washed out as well. Matt, maybe I just want you to offer a little bit more detail into the technical aspects of trading in the sense that sell orders can be canceled because you might put out a bid there to sell a large block of stock, and by the time you get back any information about what's available at a particular price, you could then cancel that order, which is, as you say, would accentuate changes in volatility. Exactly. They, they, again, these, these, uh, uh, the way these things are set up in, in, in fractions of a section, and I mean real fractions, tiny one millionth of a, well, one thousandth of a, of a second, uh, these orders can be canceled. You think you've got a, a bid to hit. In other words, you can sell it at a certain price, and when you go down to sell it, it's not there. Uh, and then suddenly you're selling at a lower price. And if you put a market order in, and then suddenly you're, you're hitting, uh, instead of selling a lot at one price, you've sold just very little there, and, and then you sell the stock down. So it's, it gets overdone. I'll tell you, though, if we get another downdraft, I believe the, the best way to play it is not try to pick the bottom, but I, what I call line the book. In other words, if you want to buy uh, $1,000 worth of a stock, buy 200 at one level, then buy another $200 down a half of a dollar below that, and below that, and below that. Line it all the way down. You're never going to be able to pick the bottom, but that way your average price will be actually quite good, and uh, you won't be sitting there trying to chase things around when all this mechanized trading is going on. Matt, what do you think is driving the sell-off? Well, I think you know it's uh, threefold. Uh, number one is the uh, the Federal Reserve um, uh, st sticking by their guns uh, and saying that they're going to continue to tighten. Um, and the, the one thing is that they've been tightening for two years now, uh, almost two years anyway. And and that's what happens. It usually take, there's usually a big lag between when they start tightening and when it has an impact on the stock market. Now the same thing is is true uh, uh, on the, uh, the these. Um, uh, things with the, the, the trade issues with China. I mean, it was a lot of talk, but once these uh, trade, I'm sorry, these tariffs were actually imposed, that's when it started having an impact. And it is having an impact, uh, as we're seeing, on, uh, well, at least not earnings right now, but on, on earnings guidance. And that's a big concern. And the last thing, of course, I think is Europe with this thing of Italy. The people, you know, we've seen the European banks uh, fall well into the bear market territory before any, uh, our market started to decline. It's something people were ignoring and not paying enough attention to. So it's kind of a three-pronged three thing here. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, the economy is still fine. I, I think we'll, this correction is healthy and normal. It could be a little bit deeper. Actually, it could be even go down another, you know, like I said, 5 or 6 or 7% more. Uh, but uh, uh, we don't want things to go up in a straight line. This is actually healthy, and uh, I, wouldn't, uh, um, I wouldn't get I say overly concerned. It's scary, but uh, that's, that's the way it works. Thanks very much.
Thanks very much for being with us. Matt Maley is uh, the uh, chief equity strategist for Miller Tayback and Company. And uh, it sounds as though he's uh, bullish, at least uh, on the price action. How, I mean, this price action is mind boggling. Now we're back down to barely any gain at all on the NASDAQ. I mean, things have absolutely been swinging all over the place uh, today, and they have been over the past few days. And that certainly undermines confidence in and of itself. Yeah. And you've got this sell-off well, I mean, even though the S&P 500 is uh, higher by a little bit more than six and a half points, it is off its highs of the day, and we are almost doing a round turn to where the market opened. General Electric has been a sore spot for equity markets for a long time. And today it almost looked like they were ripping the Band-Aid off. And then regulators, it turns out, <laughs> are looking into the company. Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things industrials, joins us now. So what's going on here and why can't GE just catch a break? There are a couple of different things going on here. Um, so, you know, you reference regulators. What they said on the conference call is the SEC is expanding its investigation into the company's accounting practices to include this $22 billion goodwill charge that they booked in their power unit. Now, the SEC started this investigation after GE said in January that it was going to have a $15 billion reserve shortfall related to a legacy insurance business. So to me, it's not terribly surprising that the SEC is going to look at this goodwill charge because it's basically the same issue. So the insurance business, GE reviewed that every single year. So then to all of a sudden come out with a $15 billion shortfall, I think raised a lot of questions about the credibility of their internal controls. It's the same issue with the goodwill. I mean, GE reviewed that as recently as the second quarter and said that the, you know, carrying value exceeded the fair value. And so to then all of a sudden do a complete 180 and all of a sudden have this $22 billion charge, I think those are the same questions. Now, the difference, I think, and the bigger point is that GE also said the DOJ is now investigating the same things the SEC was looking into, including this goodwill charge. The Department of Justice, meaning it could be potentially criminal? Yes. And so I think that obviously adds another element of risk here. The other factor is now that you're bringing this goodwill charge into the SEC investigation, there's a number of shareholder fraud lawsuits out there uh, against GE related to that insurance reserve shortfall. This just sort of adds more fuel to their claims. I wonder if you could tell us what the effect or potential effect this might have on the credit rating of GE. Yes. So um, S&P has cut its credit rating on uh, GE earlier this month. They're now at uh, BBB plus down from A and Moody's and Fitch put their ratings on review for downgrade. Um, personally, I have to say that's long overdue and they were about the last people to wake up to the fact that GE's earnings and debt prospects for the foreseeable future are nowhere near that realm of credit worthiness. Um, you know, in terms of the numbers from today changing their outlook, I don't know if there's anything that would necessarily, you know, dilute that more other than just sort of the ongoing challenges at the power unit, which GE says is going to cause it to significantly miss its cash flow targets for the year. Okay. So why were the shares up ahead of the market open? <laughs> when the company said that it was going to cut its dividend, which was widely expected, but still, it means that shareholders are getting less money and missed estimates, and still their shares were rallying until there was I also think, I mean, it almost makes you feel like they shouldn't have conference calls, right? But um, no, I... Uh, <laughs> Good call. 
I think, you know, why you saw the shares railing, the dividend cut was expected, but I think it's the kind of aggressive action people are really looking for out of Larry Culp. Um, and I think I talked with you at the time when John Flannery cut the dividend last year about how it probably wasn't going to be enough and that the payout was still going to soak up way too high a percentage of their free cash flow. Um, and that was with their, you know, old target. Now, obviously, with the new target, it becomes even more untenable. And so I think th this was a bold step, and it was also a necessary step when you look at all of these potential capital calls at GE and the ongoing struggles in, in GE Power. I mean, he needed to do something to shore up the balance sheet, and I think this was what investors were looking for. Um, you know, and there's some debate about GE has long been sort of a, a retail investor uh, attraction, but you know, you probably lost some of that base when they cut the dividend the first time around. So that may be why you're not seeing quite as painful of a reaction. Is the power unit at GE salvageable? <laughs> uh, that is the question. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about this. I do think it's interesting what they're doing. So they said they're going to split the power unit into two. And so one will be primarily focused on the gas turbines, equipment and services. And then the other will be sort of all of these other assets that are in power. So that's steam, that's nuclear, that's power conversion. Not all of those other assets are bad and they're not necessarily as exposed to this sort of structural transition where, you know, the preference is really shifting to renewable energy technologies because they're cheaper. But some of these assets like industrial focused generation equipment or the grids business, those still have a relatively viable outlook. I mean, you think about ABB is trying to sell its grids business and is getting pretty high valuations for it. And so the idea here is to sort of create, I mean, almost a bad bank of, of power assets and then, you know, an okay-ish bank of these other assets. So that should help. The other big thing is cost cuts. Um, but, you know, there's a big debate on how much those cost cuts are actually going to translate to the bottom line. GE's done a lot of restructuring over the years, and we haven't really seen that play off. And there's issues in Europe, too, given the agreements that they made as part of the Alstom deal around jobs numbers as to how deep they can cut there. Many thanks. Always. Brooke Sutherland, a Bloomberg opinion columnist all about deals and industrial companies. After the close of trading today, we will get quarterly results from Facebook. And here to tell us about Facebook and other technology stocks is none other than Colin Gillis, the director of research for Chatham Road Partners. Colin Gillis, is Facebook as big as it's going to ever get? Tim, it's always a wonderful pleasure to speak with you. And let's put this into perspective, right? We've gotten three names out of the five-letter FANG tech stocks that have reported, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And then we know that of the Amazon, Netflix, and Google, the reports that we've seen, the stocks have all traded down. Today is Facebook's turn. The stock has declined over 30% from its high in July. I do not think it's peaked. You don't think it's peaked? In other words, I do not. you think that Correct. it's going to rally? I do. Right? And so I understand the concerns that they're running out of users, right? The, the, the concern is literally, you know, they've got around 2.2 billion users. There are about 3.5 billion humans on the Internet. So that's going to be a, a constraint factor. I, I definitely understand that they're putting in 
more and more expenses around privacy and contact control, right? but they're going to be able to extract over time more value per user. And while you may see margins come down, they've told us that quite clearly, right? This is still a company that's going to grow its revenue this quarter, you know, somewhere along the lines of, you know, 34% on a year-over-year basis. It's a real business. If it's a real business, then those billions of users are potentially at risk if something goes wrong with the platform. And something has gone wrong previously, correct? Correct. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is the risk reward equation, right? And this is why some people have decided to uh, exit their investments and rotate their money into other names. Right. But given the, the, the magnitude of the pullback and also, right, you say, has it gotten as large as it's ever going to get? Right? Its market cap is $410 billion. Well, it's still well below, you know, where Google is at, you know, what, 717, Amazon, 745. Yeah. Right, much larger than Netflix at $124 billion. Well, Colin, I'm wondering, heading into 2018, what was your outlook on Facebook shares? So we were uh, concerned for, for pullback. We were concerned that the market was not factoring in the costs related to the, the privacy efforts that they, were, that they had to implement. Right? And some of that did bear out to be true. But now I think the pendulum has swung too far the other way. Well, hold on one second, because you were talking about how it's a real business and how it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's not as big as Google, for example. But at the end of the day, Facebook essentially is an advertising platform. It's essentially a Absolutely. place where they have a lot of eyeballs and they can distribute uh, content to them. But if their algorithms and if their uh, privacy standards are questioned, that undermines their business model, albeit real or not. Well, it only undermines that business model if we see users leaving the platform, and if we see advertisers leaving the platform, right? And so we're going to see that. We're going to get that data literally, you know, in a few hours, right? And we'll see, particularly the most valuable component are the North American, right, monthly active users. And we'll see if that number moves, right? It's kind of stalled out, right? You know, they were around that 241 million, right? You know, any lift from that number last quarter would be, would be a positive. So... You know, it's not going to grow much, but if you can extract more revenue from those people, right, and that number, that ARPU, the average revenue per user, is people are expecting a, a nice hefty lift on that. The estimate right? is so that they're... each user in the United States or Canada generates about $26 in revenue for the company. Correct. Right. All right. Well, now, uh, you talk about the potential for Facebook. Do they have a plan for how to monetize WhatsApp? Well, you know, WhatsApp is a wonderful messaging service. Messaging in and of itself has not been very well monetized. And so I wouldn't be focused as much on the – I wouldn't be an investor based on the WhatsApp part of the story. I wouldn't be an investor based on the Oculus part of the story. Yeah. Right. Instagram is obviously also – a growing, flourishing business that's going to have the same monetization opportunities as Facebook. Yeah. Right? Well, but you want to make sure that the core business itself is, is that they're able to stabilize it, they're able to do so in a way where they can re- retain their users, where they can retain their advertisers, and that they can, can quell both public perception as well as investor concern right. that the, the management team has a, a, a privacy issue that they 
can't contain. Let's shift our focus a little bit to Thursday. That's when Apple is going to report their third quarter earnings. Shares of that company up uh, almost 28% year to date. What are you expecting to hear from them? Right. You know, and so the thing with Apple is while everyone, you know, will dissect the numbers that they report, the most important piece of information they'll give will be the guidance for the December quarter, right? Because it, they're still very stacked to, to the holiday season. And right, you, you, if you focus in on the iPhone itself, right, the concern, the, the, the thesis is one of two things, right? It's a stable platform on which they can build a successful services business on top of, right? And th- that's a positive thesis, right? Or you, you look at the units of iPhones, and you say they've done a good job of driving more revenue per phone, but if you're concerned that the unit base, you know, is either growing in, you know, small single-digit numbers, or possibly even shrinking, but the revenue is being made up because they're getting more revenue per phone, then that may impact the services business and, and its ability to grow. Because you know, a big part of the, of the story and the thesis is that the services business will become a, a major margin driver and will add a, a higher multiple business onto the lower multiple hardware, onto the hardware side. Thinner, lighter, and has retina display. That's the description of the new MacBook Air that's just been released and is on sale from Apple. Do you believe that the desktop or the laptop or the computer and PC business for Apple is important? It's icing. You know, it's, it's, it's really just icing on the cake, right? And, and you know, depending on how the, the, the phones move and, and the ARPUs, right, the, the rest of it is, you know, just kind of considered ancillary information. Colin right, Gillis, ancillary. thank you so much for being with us. Colin Gillis is director of research at Chatham Road Partners, uh, talking about what to expect with Facebook coming out after the bell with their earnings as well as Apple. Under Armour has been a stock that has been hard to get right. Today, it is surging 26% after demonstrating that its turnaround is taking hold. That is the biggest one-day pop in the share since 2008. Joining us to break it all down, give us a sense of what's ahead is Chen Gertsudis. He is apparel and footwear analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, so Chen, what's your take? What exactly drove their better-than-expected results? Yeah, hi, Lisa. I think this is today we, we actually see the first phase of the turnaround um, actually benefiting the company. Um, and I think it's mainly on the margin side. And, and they took a few steps that are necessary for the business, but they were very hard to do. Um, so first of all, the inventory. Inventory was down 1% versus last year. And that, that was a surprise because we were expecting it to be a lot higher. And when you have less inventory is uh, when you have to do less discounting. So in Bloomberg Intelligence, we track, for example, the promotional emails year over year. So last year in the third quarter, we had about 33 emails we got from them. This year is only 20. So there's a 30% decrease in discounting. So gross margin are higher, and uh, that's what drove most of the benefit this quarter. Just say that again. You track the number of promotional emails that are sent out by like every company. For the companies we cover, yes. Yeah. And it gives us some indication uh, year over year how promotions look like. Clearly, because I noted that the retailers mm-hmm. cited Under Armour in several cases as being the cause for why their numbers were not better because they were flushing out the inventory 
that I guess Under Armour had shipped to them. Right. So Under Armour would have different channels to clear their inventory. So you know, while the retailers have elevated uh, inventory, Under Armour were not promoting their own in their own channels. So okay. they're able to get their margins on that side. Is this a is this a story about international growth versus growth in the United States for Under Armour? So Under Armour is still mostly U.S. Uh, a lot more than you know their competitors like Nike and Adidas. So yeah, they're still say, they're still seeing you know double digit growth in international markets, but it's a much much lower base. Um, we saw a pause in that in third quarter. It was only about fifteen percent. Um, they think they're going to see a reacceleration of that in the fourth quarter. So going back to about 30 percent growth. So it's, it's for the most part it's an international story for Under Armour. The interesting thing to me is how Under Armour certainly is an idiosyncratic story, but I'm looking right now at the S&P 500 sub-index of retailers, which is actually outperforming the broader S&P index year to date, which is a surprise because this industry had been left for dead. What does that tell you? So you know what I got to I got to say when we going into 2018 I had a you know feeling of looking at the data that that 2018 is going to be the the year that retailers actually fight back the fight back Amazon the fight back the shift to e-commerce they're trying to um, you know, the 2017, they were in a mode of surviving survival, so closing stores, reducing the inventory, but now they're trying to figure that out. So now they, they're starting to get tools to actually uh, help them compete with their online competitors. Like what? So, you know, getting better insights from data online on, you know, which inventory they should put in which stores. Um, that helps them to, again, avoid discounting. So less inventory in stores that are not doing well. Um, cutting the cycles of getting merchandise into the store. So instead of the nine to 12 months, now you can go three to six months. So you're better, you know, you have a better um, idea of the trends out there in the market and you're not bringing in merchandise that's not gonna sell fast. So as retailers are getting smarter about what they sell in the store, um, I think people are feeling compelled to go and visit the stores because they look better and have more, you know, on-trend stuff. Um, therefore, the sales are better, margins are better. Can you speak to any product that they've introduced that is a big winner for them right now? Uh, specifically Under Armour? Yeah. I think actually that's part of the problem because um, what we're seeing is the turnaround is mainly about margin. I'm still waiting to see in the product pipeline what's going to be the next hit. Now, next month in December, they're going to have an investor day. And I think over there, we'll, we're going to see some of the new products that are going to come out next year in 2019 to um, reignite the growth rather than just the margins. They're gonna be using technology to make these textiles and these products? I mean, they got hoodies, joggers, polos, underwear, I mean, everything, you know, cold gear, hot gear, mm -hmm. compression gear. I think they want to be known as, as the company that actually brings in the science into their apparel and footwear. And I think that's the message they want to send to the consumers, and they're going to continue to do so going forward. So uh, is Under Armour grabbing share from other retailers, or is this just sort of a, a general increase in demand across the board as the economy expands? So that's not happening yet. So I don't think they're taking share away from Nike or Adidas. It's just that the, the sales that they are getting, they're getting in a much better margin than they did before. So they don't have to clear as much inventory. So we're not seeing that uh, grabbing share yet, but we might next year. And it is a competitive business, right? A very competitive business and very hard to get into. It's yeah. not easy to make shoes. No, and not <laughs> to make them in the volume that Adidas or Adidas as well as Nike makes them. And make, yeah, and make it uh, the design compelling enough for people to buy it. Maybe uh -huh. Elon Musk will get into it. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. From sorry. your lips. All right, no, that's... You I'm know. not sorry, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not... 
I see footwear in your future. Thanks very much for being with us. Ren uh, Grasuas is the uh, apparel and footwear analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at C Grazius. Now I'll spell it C G R A Z U T I S. We all follow him because we want to know what's going on in the world of uh, apparel and footwear. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.